Hi, welcome to Matters of the Heart and Soul. I'm your host, Janie Charlotte. Matters of the Heart and Soul is a podcast to raise awareness and awaken humanity to all that is within. We want to be a beacon of light on your life journey. Hi, welcome to Matters of the Heart and Soul podcast. My name is Janie Charlotte, your host, and I am co-hosting today with Russell Bruce. Hey, everybody out there. All right. So on today's podcast episode, we are talking about the state of the Black race, Black Wall Streets Everywhere conference that is coming up in Dallas, Texas, September 26th and 27th. So we are speaking with Remy and Malik regarding that today. So welcome to the show, guys. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Good afternoon. All right. Ola Remy Sano is currently the CEO of Fiancra Development Fund based in Arlington, Texas, and partners with Mr. Malik Douglas and 19 others in the Cooperative Investment Fund. She also serves as Director of Development Strategic Partnerships of the Robert Pack Foundation. Mr. Malik Douglas is the founder president of Indugu. Kwa Ndugu nonprofit mentoring program for young African American boys and is the owner of Malik Seven Enterprises. He is a 20 plus year commissioned officer in the U.S. Army and will soon retire to work full time on his own business enterprises. Ms. Sano and Mr. Douglas are the driving forces behind the state of the black race, black Wall Streets everywhere conference that is coming up. Once again, September 26th and 27th in Dallas, Texas. They're here today to talk about the importance of the African-American communities pulling together during the pinnacle, during this most pinnacle time in history to organize strategies around three critical components, the Black family, Black economics, and Black health. Once again, welcome to the show. Thank you all. All right, let's jump right into it. What are the goals in uh, of the State of the Black Race Conference and why the tag Black Wall Streets Everywhere? So the goals of the Black uh, Wall Streets Everywhere, well, actually State of the Black Race and Black Wall Streets Everywhere is to pull people together in Dallas, Texas during a pandemic to have a family discussion. And we call it a family discussion because that's what it is. The extended Black family, our communities, our neighbors, um, our, our neighbors globally. We want people to come together, and this is going to be an, an in-person conference as well as virtual, so people have two options of attending. They can attend virtually if they don't want to come and be in person you know, during this pandemic, but they also can come in person, and to that extent, we're asking people to wear a mask, to stay socially distanced, and do all those things that the health professionals are guiding us to do, but we definitely feel like this conference is um, very, very important, and the goals are to have some critical discussions around Black economics, Black health, how to mitigate COVID um, while we're working on establishing things that we feel are important um, going forward. This is a time for us to sit and marinate. We've had about three or four months to sit and marinate. And so we felt like it was important for people to just be able to come together and strategize and organize around some very key topics. And I'll pop it over to Malika you know, from there. Well, thank you. So first of all, when we talk about state of the black race, 
we have to also keep in mind that when we look at black, we have to look at all of those people of color. And so when we say black Wall Street everywhere, when we look historically to what black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma actually encompassed, we want to take that mindset allow it to permeate not only through America, but through our global partners that are also feeling the pain of the loss of uh, the people that we have systematically lost um, through police brutality, through neglect, through financial and education, educational degradation in America, whether it be deliberate or whether it just be observing and watching it fail. Uh, a lot of times when we people see things and they, they take it as a moniker or a tag and they say black Wall Street everywhere, like we expect for all black people to own 16 square blocks in their particular neighborhood. Now, that would be awesome for it to be that. But when we look at black Wall Street everywhere, we want people to pick up on the ideology of black Wall Street and go back to owning your own neighborhoods, going in, building a mindset of financial and mental sovereignty going into a mindset that health is wealth even by just going back to just cooking at home uh doing what it takes to rebuild the family because right now we're living in a dysfunctional society of our own where we where our lack of resources and the inhibited resources is creating a breakdown in the black family so when we look at Black Wall Street everywhere, it's about building unification and we need to build and permeate that ideology worldwide. That's a, um, a great explanation. Um, Malik, let's talk about the Black family because um, I'm, I'm a strong believer in that's the foundation of building a community. If we don't have um, strong families, strong marriages, strong children, we don't have a community. So um, you mentioned that. What are some of the things that uh, attendees can expect as far as the Black family? Uh, what are some things that they can expect to get at this conference? Well, one of the things that I'm going to bring to the table is talking about the state of the Black race. And then when we actually get into the area of how do we create wealth for a family and we, all, we commonly hear generational wealth. Uh, but a lot of times we don't realize that generational generational wealth can actually be attained just from cre just by keeping the nuclear and family in place. And mm -hmm. these days we're we're I mean it's driving me crazy how I keep hearing susu susu susu, and I'm like, do you all really understand what the susu is? And then people start talking about you know donating or giving a hundred dollars and then bringing three people to the table. Negative. That is not a susu. A susu is just getting your family together and, and investing in that black family. Now, whether that's through a home, whether that's through a parcel of land, whether that's through developing a farm and getting back to agrarian societies, whether that's taking on that older mindset and what we have to keep in mind, some things didn't go wrong during Reconstruction. We can go back and take that same mindset from Reconstruction that the eldest children will go off to college while the younger children and the parents stay home to work the land so they can create that wealth, meaning that tuition and getting that family, uh, getting that family moved forward by pushing that child through college so that that child can, can become successful and then start granting that opportunity to those children behind them. So it's not mm -hmm. just about necessarily directly. How are we telling people to raise children? How are we telling people to, uh, 
keep the nuclear family together. It's really about looking at it broad spectrum on a macro scale saying, hey, we want you all to, one, set goals for your family, meaning we're going to own a family home, maintain that family home, and that will be our buying power. That's our family liquidity. How will we keep our family together? We will work on our relationships, our familial relationships, because a lot of times we tear down families through divorce, and then hence there's a splitting of that wealth. We need to be able to keep that wealth working together, whether you're on paper still together or not, not driving a wedge between our children. And then also when we look at health versus wealth, looking at the mental stability of our family, not destroying our mental stability and and creating other forms of PTSD within the family of mothers and fathers arguing and children's be- children being able to split and walk away. One more thing I want to add to that, um, that we have. Um, that's going to be, first of all, children can attend the, the conference, the two days, the parents should, should come with their children. Because, uh, you know, for me, this is a working conference. This is not something where we're going to get together and, you know, hoop and holler and watch people pontificate. And we're going to be clapping because people are speaking well. This is totally the opposite. This We have categories of conversation that we have uh, scripted out. And anybody that is going to be listening to this podcast or is listening can go to www.blackwallstreets with a s everywhere.com um, and find the schedule. And there are things that we need to cover in all areas. And as we know, as we all know on this phone from our elders and our uh, some of the ancestors now, we need to be looking at anything that black folks operate by: food, clothing, shelter, safety, and security. We're covering all those areas, and one of the security uh, measures in terms of the black family is how do we protect our black family? So we have to, number one, what Malik just said, keep our families together, but also protect our black family. So we have a class that is um, basically going to be teaching people how to um, deal with self-defense as a family. Kids are involved in that. We have classes that are going to be dealing with mental health as a family. Children can be involved in that also. We have a guided imagery at the end where we're going to be taking people and walking them through How do we envision seeing ourselves build these communities and build these businesses and build these community farms? How do we see ourselves doing that? Part of that is reinforcing the affirmation and the affirmative that we can do it with our families and children can be involved in that. Um, The first day is actually business and wealth from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. And the second day is health and wealth. That second day, we have a lot of classes, whether they be dance, fitness, security, Um, self-defense, yoga, a lot of classes that deal with health and wellness, but all people at all levels and all age sets can attend that. So I just wanted to kind of spell that out so people would know what to look forward to. Good stuff. So as far as uh, being able to protect the family, are you guys also going to cover, like NFAC right now is making big headway on making sure that you know, black families are licensed to carry to defend their household. Uh, also, Malik, you were talking about, you know, the, you know, establishing wealth in the family. I know growing up, even, you know, in our community where everybody was poor, they just made sure that everybody had life insurance policies so that there was something that was being able to be passed down, at least to bury them, if not to give the children something to build upon. Can you touch on that, please? Well, I'm going to stay in my lane <laughs> and deal strictly <laughs> with uh, finances and education. Um, so 
me staying in my lane, I'm really about creating solidarity in the family through creating generational wealth. Um, But now being a a licensed weapons carrier, um, a global licensed carrier, if people have questions, they can ask. But um, I believe in an expert from the Austin area who is going to come in and actually talk about as well as express how people go about getting properly licensed as well as handling a weapon. Now, as a uh, service member, I can, I can pretty much handle anything from a 50 cal Bushmaster mounted on a vehicle all the way down to a nine millimeter pistol. But uh, what I do for my personal safety, I do not feel comfortable being able to address that to people that I'm teaching a lesson um, because at the time of uh, adversity or when someone enters your home without permission, you will react. Uh, So I'll leave that to the professionals. But when you ask me as an individual, I'm looking at how do I get people to access USDA grants and how to. Uh, not only feed their family from the garden to the table, but also taking from the garden and creating wealth and then using the garden itself as a means of sustaining the family. We also, but we do also have somebody already booked for the the guy that is uh, teaching the, the class on family self-defense is the person that um, does the LTC training here. He also does the gun, gun range shooting class, and that is um, Uncle Ben. Um, academy and that is body by old tactical so he actually is going to be doing the classes and extending the classes for families to be able to train not only get licensed but to be able to train on a regular basis um, they have an extensive academy he used to be the national trainer for the for the black the national black um, gun association and he actually works in in cahoots with a lot of those people out of atlanta so he his name is um junior oliver great friend of mine he also used to be the um, boot camp director at my dance studio. So he's already uh, confirmed to be there for the self-defense class and to extend the information for people to be able to um, come to his academy for LTC licensing and for gun training. So that's included in the conference. Good stuff. I, I love the name Black Wall Street. For, for the novice that's out there who really doesn't know the history behind Black Wall Street, uh, you mentioned Oklahoma. Also, it existed in, in the Wilmington, North Carolina area. Can we just give them an idea of what our people actually accomplished during that time? Well, I mean, we can we can all ch- ch- chime in. What I know as a business owner of 26 years is that we had we didn't just have um, blocks and blocks and blocks of businesses in Tulsa in the Greenwood area. What we had, we had, um, you know, airplanes, we had airlines, we had all, all types of businesses and things that were able to help our community function as a solid community. So we had banks, we had businesses, we had barbershops, we had beauty salons, we had schools, we had all those things that would make us a sovereign community. And if people don't really uh, remember that, that entire um, community was burned down to the ground maliciously, just like the other raping and pillaging of our communities that have happened, you know, prior to Malik is the history major. He's the scholar on history. But for me as a business owner, what I know and saw is that we were at various times in this country able to operate as sovereign communities. And Black Wall Street is one of the places you can look at uh, places in Harlem. You can look at places in California, you know, Baldwin Hills. I mean, there are a lot of places where people established black communities and had established businesses that 
fed every single thing that we needed. If you look at the current Asian communities and how they set up when they set up in different places, they have they have banks, bakeries, barbershops, beauty salons, um, you know, anything that they need, they service their own community, grocery stores, anything, you know, rental, rental facilities. And those are the types of things that we had um, that were burned down maliciously, you know, in Tulsa. So I know Malik can extend on that from a historical standpoint. So, yes, uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma had a 16 block region that was uh, identified as Black Wall Street under W.E.B. Du Bois during a visit to a hotel there. And and when he saw what was being done in that respective area, as far as the North American Negro owning their land, owning their property and actually lending money from within that community so that they could purchase their homes and manage their farms, he tagged it with the moniker Black Wall Street. Um, but as Ola Remy said, Throughout the U.S., there were several different places that it was also being done. The area known as Central Park in the United States, in, in New York, was an all-black community that was taken over and then bulldozed for the sake of creating Central Park in New York. Then we all know about the uh, Rosewood from the very famous movie. But even the area known as Compton was an all-black community where we owned everything. But just in the Midwest, Indianapolis, Indiana right there between uh, 10th and 16th Street on the uh, from downtown all the way up to the northwest side. There was uh, a block of land, but they even had a high school where per capita they had more PhDs teaching at Crispus Attis High School than any other school in America. And this wasn't just black PhDs. It was just PhDs as a whole because we would get our education, our proper training and certification and could not go and teach in white schools. So when we talk about Black Wall Street, it's not just what Tulsa, Oklahoma did, but we have to look at the Greenwoods. We have to look at the Greenbriars. We, look, we have to look at the area which is known as Paul Quinn right now. We have to look at Southeast Dallas and what, what all they did, the Southeast side of San Antonio and what the, uh, Amer what the North American Negro and the indigenous people as well as the Mesoamericans did in those areas to uh, allow them to grow on their own. So when we look at Wall Street, when we look at Black Wall Street, we should not just be sucked completely in on what they did in Tulsa, Oklahoma, although that is what uh, is known more prevalently as Black Wall Street because of Dr. Du Bois. But the bottom line of it is, is that these things were being done all over America to include the uh, Virgin Islands. And we have to kind of tap into what they were doing, meaning internal resources to bring that mindset back and then to see if we can start it all over again. Hmm. That's a um, great insight. Um, and we talk about mindset as far. What is the most practical mindset the black family can have right now in the middle of this pandemic um, in getting to the place of black Wall Streets everywhere? Because we have to adapt the mindset first. So what's the most practical way to get there? One of the most practical ways that I think is important is to for each, to teach in your home, each one teach one. And that is that if you can do it, somebody else can do it, whether that is growing food, whether that is sewing your own clothes. Um, I know one of the things that we're going to be covering is rites of passage for girls and boys. We won't be ha we won't have a segment on that, we'll, but we'll talk about the importance of it, because that's something that is a cultural construct that was taken away from us when we got to this country. And we're reinstituting that in a lot of ways. We need to be able to, um, you know, 
basically help people understand why you need to pass information down, why information transmission is important. And that's one of the most important cultural constructs. So one of the basic things that families need to know in regard to mindset is how do we rear our children in a way where they then go back and rear their children in the same way and they can continue to pass these things down so that we don't see these things as new and novice and only somebody outside of our community or outside of our house can do it. Um, I have a friend in Atlanta, he and his wife, they, they planned, they made a full family plan for seven generations, literally. They made a full family plan for seven generations, meaning that they wanted their children to understand that when they, when they pass away and make a transition, they want them to carry on the same values that they carried on. They want their children's children to carry on the same values and the same home and the same land that their parents passed down to them. That's a different type of thinking. So those are very basic types of things. But we get those things when we continue to um, bring back the cultural constructs, constructs that we had. Rites of passage teaches girls and boys how to um, cook, how to clean, how to sew, how to organize themselves, how to relate to men and women, you know, respectively, how to run a marketplace. There are a lot of things that were taught in rites of passage. And guess what? In most African uh, countries and most African communities, you can't go on to adulthood without having passed through rites of passage. And then you have manhood and womanhood rights, you know, when you become an adult. So there are some things that you can't do, um, you know, it, as an elder, if you don't go through further manhood and womanhood rights. So, I mean, that's a long answer to a short question, but those are some very basic ways to think. Each one, teach one. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I love the answer beautifully. I love that one right there beautifully described it all because I always ask the question is is men how does a boy know that he's become a man if there's no rites of passage you know because it's definitely not just an age thing because we see grown men in their 40s and 50s that still act like boys or just males right right uh, and oh. yeah and I just think there's a process to it because you know before we can even comprehend generational wealth we need to get the, the basic practical mindset of a family. And like you said, the rites of passage, becoming a young woman and a young man, like what does, what is that as a black family? So mm -hmm. you know, I just think we, we, there's a process and we're all on different levels, but I think if you're thinking about the average practical black family that's being affected, especially right now, most of them are in survival mode. So, you know, what are those skills and will, will there be something else at your conference um, other than the self-defense that, that attendees could get on the, the very basic practical skill level? Well, first of all, we have um, the very first um, the thing that people are going to be getting is they're going to be getting a walkthrough of some of the practical ideas that people have already put in place. We have business owners that are coming together for the first day, business and wealth. And we have people who have actually started right where you all are starting right now with a podcast, right? A podcast is something simple. It's something that people can tune into on a regular basis. It's something where people can come for regular education. So we have one of the best of the best out there right now, Mr. Rashad Bilal, coming in um, to do uh, to talk about how he started his podcast, which is at the top 10 right now of all podcasts in the United States, the top 10 on business. And what he does is he, instead of waiting for people to have to go through a four-year university program, he and his partner, um, 
created something called Earn Your Leisure University. How do you earn your leisure? You you study, you go learn the things that you need to do to make your lot better. You know, you can pick up information about real estate. You can pick up information about nonprofits. You can pick up information about how do we repair the black family? You can pick up information about how do I get involved in social justice initiatives? All those things are on one podcast. So we have somebody um, doing the same things that you all are doing. And to that extent, um, that's very important because now we can say black people need to have and create our own media spaces, which is what we're doing. We're creating media spaces that basically allow us to be able to put information out and teach families what they need to do. So we have that on the first day. The second day, something very practical that families can do is we have to be able to teach people how to deal with their health in a very practical way because you can't do anything and you can't be anything for anybody if you don't have health. So we have a doctor's panel coming together where we have medical doctors, we have neurologists, we have uh, uh, chiropractors, we have people coming from the mental health side of things all coming together to talk about some very basic things that people people can do to mitigate COVID as well as to help just drive better health in the Black community. So those are some very fundamental things that we can start with. I don't know if Malik has some things, some additional things, but those are some of the ones that we're starting with at the conference. That's awesome. Well, I mean, you're being very modest about the nuclear group that we have because uh, actually the people that are centralized in uh, Fahankara, we actually bringing in several long-term educators. We're bringing in coaches at the collegiate level, and we actually have a chef that is going to come in. He's of the Nation of Islam, and he prescribes to Eating to Live uh, by Elijah Muhammad, but he has actually written a dietary needs book. So when we talk about keeping the family together, growing the family, what are we doing to develop the family? Actually, uh, Chef Brandon is going to talk about coming back and getting back from from actually working with our hands, getting into the garden, going back to canning food straight from the garden to the table. Uh, one of the things that we've started in Fahankra was a uh, community garden. But one of our near term future plans is to actually create a community actual garden that will create wealth. But at the same time from that, we want to create either a bedroom breakfast or a nice little brunch and lunch spot where you can go and we can pull your food straight from the garden, rinse it, clean it properly, and then prepare it. But he will be talking about how do we actually, and this ties back into health and wealth, but it's also tying back into a, what can we do as a family? Because one of the lost arts of centralizing and making sure that the family is well, mentally, physically, academically, socially, financially, one of the lost arts is the actual dinner table. We've satisfied for eating out of a bag or, or prepping something from a box and, and throwing it on the table and everybody fixes a plate and walks away. It, that we want to talk about and we're leaving that up to Chef Brandon, uh, how to prepare meals that will actually bring the family back around the table. So when we also start talking about how do we create this generational wealth, it's also about breaking down some of those stereotypes that we've developed over time in the in the North American Negro mindset that we don't talk about death. Uh, we avoid conversations of insurance because we're afraid that it's going that it's leading to someone to die, mm -hmm. you know, so we want to be able to uh, figure out 
and share with individuals how do we actually create that dialogue within the family. One of you all brought up, you know, leaving something behind. Now, I'm not a prescriber of life insurance. I'm just not because when you amateurize life insurance over time from the time you're 18 that you start paying into it, and most of us don't get a valid life insurance policy until we're about 25 on our first job. When you look at what you pay into that life insurance policy, I could do the same thing and put it into an IBA with a 3.7% return and watch that continuously grow over time and then invest once I hit the $50,000 mark into a mutual fund. And in 20 years, I could leave my family six times more than what the least level of uh, life insurance could. But everybody doesn't see it that way. But that is a good conversation to have. What are you leaving behind? It's a great conversation to have. What are you leaving behind? What have you initiated with your families? Like part of my speech, I'll be talking about uh, 529 plans. And we don't have to wait till our children are born. If you're married and you think you're going to have children, start a 529 plan. That You can leave a name off of it up to 60 months before you have to designate it. That's just a way of saving money and preparing for your children's uh, graduation and, and preparation for college. But if you have two children like my eldest two children, they didn't go to college. So their 529s were cashed out and given to them once they got of age. But how many kids can you see? Can you say their parents gave them a five figure starting life? Mm -hmm. So that's when we start talking about family, when we start talking about health and wealth, it all centers around coming back to increasing black Wall Street. Mm -hmm. That's great, great stuff. Great conversation. I love it. I yeah. love it. Matter of fact, I can't wait to to watch it online. We'll be here, but I'm gonna definitely watch this online. You guys are providing a lot of valuable information. And and another big thing, um, I think we really need as a people to change the way that we view ourselves because I think there was a lot of destruction in what was lost in the middle passage. And, uh, you know, with these platforms, you know, podcasts and so forth, I think we're able to tell our story. Uh, it kind of irritates me when I go to social media and most of the people are on there showing uh, world star videos and then don't understand why people don't have any respect for them. It's like you can't allow other people to tell your story. We have to tell our own story and we have to tell our own history because they're not going to give it to us in a way that's going to empower us. We're going to have to give that to ourselves. So I really commend and appreciate what you guys are doing. And, and also you were talking about canning and food. I also do a lot of food blogging. I consider myself somewhat of a closet chef and, uh, we were just having that conversation the other day about, you know, when we grew up, how, you know, our families, that was a time for us to sit down and everybody in the family catch up on, you know, what's going on in everybody else's world and everybody got a chance to talk. Right. And um, mm -hmm. I, I really developed my cooking skills, like cooking for my children. You know, I, I was a real estate investor, um, an IT engineer, and I had, spent over a decade working from home. So I was always there with my children cooking and I was able to pour a lot into them, you know, at the dinner table. So I really appreciate that knowledge and information. Well, we have, um, Russell, you mentioned two really important things. One is very, very um, dear to my heart because I wrote a book on it and that is how we see ourselves. And my, my book is tailored toward 
um, young girls and women, but also toward men. And my, the funny thing is I have 40 percent uh, reader readership is uh, men, men who want to know about the topic or who want to have conversations about the topic in a way where they won't get attacked and, um, you know, eaten alive for, for having an opinion. And the book is the book is called On Purpose. Big lips, Botox, blonde hair, and big booties. And it's American women's fascination with with falsehoods and amidst of social change. And why I wrote that back in 2018 is because we have to start internally in our family, in our families, with you know, making sure that people understand who they are and who we are phenotypically, um, culturally, socially, you know, and making sure that we really, really give each other the the time to express the ways that we need to express who we are naturally and authentically. That's important for me as a woman, as a black woman, um, as an educated black woman, as a as a person who has um, total value in and sees total value in her culture. And we want to be able to pass those things on to young women. But we also want our men to feel the same that we don't want people to start um, their life out thinking that they are behind somebody in any kind of way. Um, we are first world people. We know that. And we should be passing that on to our children. And one way to pass it to our children is at the dinner table. Um, I just want to give you a couple of props real quick, Russell, because I've, I've known you for a long time. I, I watch you cook all the time. Me and you used to pop around on each other's posts and, you know, especially cooking posts and food posts and stuff like that. But um, part of the nurturing of families comes from the food that you serve at the dinner table and comes from the conversations that you serve at the dinner table. But that's also where people find their worth in a lot of ways, where parents are making sure that their children feel loved, having conversations with their children and hearing their children out about things that they like and that they love and making sure that men and women hear each other out, you know, regardless of whether it's something positive or something that they have to work through as an obstacle in the family. So for me, um, a way to address the part, address part of that was to create a small book that was able to really open up the conversation of who are we authentically? Who are we? And, you know, one of the things that I used to, to ask people in my classes and in my business classes are, who are you? Are you really who you say you are? And are you all that you can be? If families concentrated on those three things, which I learned a long time ago as an undergrad in college, those three things right there will keep you busy lifelong. So you don't have time to be in somebody else's business. You don't have time to be on war, World Star. You don't have time to be staying in the the uh, the side of the the paradox that I call usism because you have racism, but we also have usism, and the usism is what kills us. The attacks against each other, the hyper uh, the hyper uh, what do you call it? I'm gonna just say hyper media. Um, aspect of always putting something on blast and putting people on blast and that kind of stuff that's very destructive. So for me, it basically is um, an opportunity to talk about, you know, we need to get those opportunities more at the dinner table where we could talk about, you know, who you are and, you know, what you about, what did you do today? What was your, you know, what was your week like? The things that the intrinsic things that re really bring values to families, you know, Kids, I don't even think, take enough time to sit down and um, talk to each other or talk to their parents or be heard. You know, everybody's on the move all the time. And I think that's one of the blessings, actually, of COVID, that we had to sit down. We had to be still. We had to start cooking. We, some people started growing food even on their porch, you know. So that conversation about who are we is extremely important. And, and the food ways and bringing those food ways back and having people sit down at the table is 
one of the best ways to do it in a basic way that doesn't cost a lot of money. Good stuff. Yeah. Um, one other question, and then we can move actually into the uh, Hung for development. And you guys tell us a little bit about that. Um, before we move from the Black family, um, is there any component in the conference on spirituality? Because um, African-Americans, I mean, there's a strong, strong basis on spirituality. And we know that anything that manifests on the physical, it first occurred spiritually. So is there any um, any parts in the conference on that? We don't have a part in the conference about that, but I'm sure that parts of these conversations will actually um, get that, you know, steer to that direction. And the reason why I'm saying is that saying that is because um, some of the people who have been invited, because I've asked um, Pastor Freddie Haynes um, from Friendship West Baptist Church, if he could be available to be there. Um, many people know him from being one of the most outspoken pastors in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, um, and also from being a freedom fighter on the front lines in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Recently, um, the church, you know, was threatened, I wouldn't say attacked, but threatened for sure, um, where, you know, some people from a Blue Lives Matter uh, protest um, came over and decided that they were going to, you know, show a presence on the church grounds. And because of all because of a big, giant, huge Black Lives Matter banner that's on the side of the church that you can see from I-20. So now we that steers off into social justice. It steers off into, you know, the 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 uh, convergence of spirituality with social justice, which we know most black churches exist in that space. So, you know, we didn't put a specific category for spirituality. Um, but we also know that it's just not the church. You know, we have people who are um, Muslim. We have people who are uh, Christian. We have people who practice traditional African um, spiritual systems. And so that conversation will come up probably in the midst of the black family conversations. But we didn't put a category on there. Um, sometimes, I, you know, I really think that by design, those things are important because it can trigger people in certain ways. And we want to be able to keep the conversation open, the conversations open and be able to allow everybody for whatever space they exist in to have conversation about these main components, you know? Yeah. Right. And I, I think that's why she said spirituality versus religion, because it's Voila. all encompassing. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter mm -hmm. whether you're Christian, Jew or Muslim right. or even if you're an atheist, the laws yeah. of the universe pertain to all of us, whether we want to believe in them or well, not. Well, that, no doubt. Also, you know, understanding, if we can understand who we are at the basis, we're love, which is, is spirit. Mm -hmm. And, you know, mm -hmm. I think we as as Black people really have to understand that. Like, we, we're not our bank accounts, you know? Right, at, right. At the very basis of it. And we're, you know, I think that has to be driven to... But, you know, yeah, the whole balance of mind, body and soul and economics. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, if your soul's not right, you're going to have a hard time getting along with other people. You know, you were right out of the backbiting. Yeah. Things of that, because we, we were destroyed spiritually. You know, not only was our land colonized, exactly. God was colonized, our minds were mm -hmm. colonized. So but I get that, but I, I love what you guys are doing. So let, let's move on to talking about some of the things you guys are doing right now, as far as cooperative economics 
at uh, Fihankra Development. So, well, Fihankra Development Fund was actually born during the pandemic. And so what we did is it actually started, most of us, um, I know most of us on this phone operate in this space already. So um, what I did during the pan pandemic at the very beginning, I got on social media because I was really concerned about seeing um, a whole lot of people that started taking to Zoom. Um, they were learning about Zoom. It was great. I wasn't concerned about them using Zoom, but what I was seeing as a trend was a bunch of people were starting to convene every Friday on Zoom to have cocktail hours, right? And so people are doing what they see in, um, you know, what they do in regular life. They go, they go to happy hour and all this stuff on a regular basis. They spend tons of money, but people will sit in a pandemic and complain about not having any money or being cut off from their economic source. And so what I was saying, I actually did it as a joke at first, and I put a, put up a picture that said, a uh, picture of myself with a sign that I that I wrote with some marker, and I said, "If uh, if you don't come out of this time period with something extra and something new, and then it's not them, it's us. You know what I mean? Uh, it's you, basically." And so, I, and then I got on the next the next uh, maybe another couple of days on social media, and I said, "I would love to have a conversation with at least about ten people on a Friday." on zoom you know what i mean mm -hmm. talking about economics and what kind of stuff we can do while we're sitting down during a pandemic there are many things that we can do together uh cooperatively and so i opened that up i talked to a couple of people i reached out to malik i reached out to a friend named anika maiden and um basically i reached out to some other folks too and i invited them to a zoom but the people who got on were malik who's on the phone with us now and um, Sister uh, Anika, can y'all hear feedback over there? Yeah, yeah just a it was kind of coming in. Okay, I just, I just, okay, I'm, I, I haven't moved. I just started hearing that myself. Anyway, those are the two that responded. So from that conversation, that initial conversation, I think Malik, that went about two hours or so. We were on the phone talking for about two hours about some things that we can pull together. And I told him about an idea. I said, you know, people might not feel like they have money, but we could start something even with $10. If we get 100 people together to put in $10, you know, you have what? ten? You have $1,000 right there that you can start something with. And so we actually started with more than that. We actually started with a grid of for the next nine months that we're going to be sitting down wondering about this pandemic. What if we gave people an affordable way to invest in a collective enterprise that nobody considered they couldn't afford it because we started out with $10. That's your commitment. Your initial commitment is $10. Then maybe we can bump it up the next month to $100. Then how about we bring it back down to $10 a month after and go back up to 100 and keep rotating that for nine months. And what we did, is we looked at if we continue to um, broaden that out and invite other people to that same process and decide what types of things we would like to do with that money, then we were creating a cooperative enterprise, which is what we did. And so our goal for December of 2020, by the way, we added a couple of financial advisors to that process, one being uh, Rashad Bilal and the other one was my sister, who's a finance person out of San Francisco. They both are advisors to this, but not necessarily, um, you know, they're not people who are working for the organization. They're people who gave um, really good, solid advice and information for the organization. So we grew that out to a goal of $22 million, which we're on, we're on goal and we're on track to hit all of our marks. By, by September, we'll have a $50,000 amount that we'll put into a mutual fund, which is going to be advised by, you know, another close uh, a friend 
and then who also is a, an advisor. But we also are going to have, we have the community garden. That we have that. Let me move my, this is, this feedback is getting, kind of, not sure. Um, anyway, we have a community garden that grew out of that. We have a scholarship fund, a monthly scholarship fund to HBCUs that grew out of that. Let me see. Can y'all hear that? Yeah. Yeah. About now. Yes. Keep talking. Okay, so we have a um, we have a monthly HBCU scholarship fund that grew out of that. Where immediately we started doing a thousand dollars to a different HBCU every month. We created the George Floyd scholarship for social justice reform at Grambling State University. We then created the um, Elijah McClain scholarship for freedom and justice at Southern University. And the third one is going to go to uh, Florida A&M University. And so for every single person that was murdered in the streets or murdered in their homes or, you know, um, you know, fail at the hands of police brutality, we decided we're just going to make a scholarship in their name and honor those people and make something good out of those negatives that occurred in our community. So that's what the Fihankra uh, Development Fund started out as. Uh, we have a lot, a lot more goals in mind, and we started teaching people how they can be a part of that by just becoming an investor, you know, an investment partner. We actually decided to go ahead and cut that off at 100. <laughs> so uh, shared profits is very important, but also shared mindset is very important. So we won't be allowing just any old person. It's not a free for all. It's not a cattle call. This this particular fund absolutely requires people having a solid mindset on you know what we're doing and a solid commitment to showing up with their with their minds being part of that brain trust, but also with their dollars. And so I know Malik probably has some things to add to that, but that's where we started. And that's good stuff. Yeah, but when we when we started looking at it, when we started looking at the uh, at the development fund, it started out really just how could we realistically get something, and I commonly call it our flower growing out of the concrete. Uh, how could we actually get a flower to grow from the concrete? And what it has actually become is actually a flower bush that has literally grown out of the concrete. We have actually spawned off seven nonprofits that have all started in this organization. Mm -hmm. uh, one being my own, uh, Indugu Kwa Indugu, which actually is Swahili for brother to brother. And it's an actual rites of passage organization that I'm starting for young men to be able to take them through that rites of passage all the way up till their 17th birthday. Uh, but from Fahankra Development, we've actually looked at creating business ventures and using that brain trust and that central organization to actually grow from just my contribution, you know, and how are we partnering dollars so that we could eliminate some business risks? Because everybody knows that when you start a business, if you're in it by yourself, if you're a sole proprietor, then you have 100% of the risk as well as 100% of the reward that's also shared with the tax man. But on the flip of it, if you can find quality partners, those who are not in it solely for the dollar, then you can actually share some of that risk where you can maximize what you bring home, as well as minimizing some of your personal overhead. And so what we've done in that organization is used our own expertise and talents to increase everybody else's goals as well as self-worth. So 
what we what we're setting out to do and the end result of uh, of the Fahankra Development Fund should actually permeate into about a hundred million dollar endowment that any school, any student would be able to tap into that we can actually relinquish some of those stigmas and stereotypes and those things that set us aside and those inhibitors to some students when we start looking at socioeconomic status status. Uh, when we start looking at, you know, mama made too much last year, so I'm not eligible for this. We just want to be able to reward a student. We want to re reward a school, not just because you're doing outstanding things, but we want to be able to reward you because you exist. And when you look at the development fund, that's exactly what we're doing is taking common people, taking everyday folks, school teachers, college professors, uh, college football players, I mean, football players and football coaches, excuse me, taking a chef who's, who's, who's owning his own business and taking that mindset and creating something out of it that is that will actually, you know, it, it, it should flower into something more than we ever thought it would be. Good stuff. Yeah, that's great. Um, so, guys, we're going to be wrapping up. Was there any other questions you had, Russell? No, we could talk all day on this. I'm loving the topic. I'm, I'm loving what they're saying. Um, yeah, we could wrap it up here. So really quickly, um, tell us about the conference, the date of the conference. How can we get tickets? Um, how can everyone reach you guys regarding any questions with the conference? Well, we have um, we have a website, www.blackwallstreetseverywhere.com with an S. Black Wall Streets is um, spelled out like that because we want people to know that that is plural, meaning that we can do that in any city that anybody decides to just take action. So we call it blackwallstreetseverywhere.com. So it's blackwallstreetseverywhere.com. They can go on there. There's a link to Eventbrite or they can go straight to Eventbrite and type in State of the Black Race. Uh, conference, Dallas, Texas, September 26th and 27th. Both days are 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., um, just four hours before power-packed uh, hours. And then they can, you know, reach out online through either one of those with questions if they have questions. So we definitely want people to know that. We also have 100 uh, spaces and opportunities for vendors. Um, so, Russell, if y'all did decide to hop on a plane and come down and join us, <laughs> Also, uh, we have vendor tables for a hundred bucks. So that sauce of yours that you just put out would be a real hit at this conference. Mm. Uh, <laughs> I'm just throwing it out there. Yeah, um, definitely a thought. We need to talk about. It is definitely a thought. And the other thing is that maybe you all could return the favor because Malik and I have a podcast that we're launching on that same weekend. And maybe you all could come down and talk about some of the things that you all are doing to help create positive media space for black families, which is something that I really think needs to happen. We need to have more podcasts. We need to have more radio stations owned by us. We need to have more TV stations and cable stations owned by us so that we can get the right narrative out there. Because what we see is that there has been um, a hyper emphasis on the negative, even by our community. So the narrative still is not correct. We need to get rid of all the Lili's, Fifi's, Didi's, Nini's, and all those people who are out there creating negative black images for black women. Um, same thing for black men. And to do that, we need to be able to have things like your podcast. So you all are definitely invited. Great. We appreciate it. Um, Malik, can you recommend to our listeners a book um, that they could pick up on generational wealth for black families? Ooh, ooh. <laughs> uh, 
let's see, generational wealth for black family. A book. Man, you said a book? Well, I'm sure there's plenty that you could recommend, but what would be your favorite? What would be one that you could recommend to our listeners and why you chose that book? So one I just read uh, that was actually shot to me about two weeks ago. And I think this one is awesome, but I'm going to give you actually two things. I'm going to give you two books and I'm going to tell you why. So the book that I, I would recommend that anybody buy and share this with their children is called The Color of Money, Black Banks in the Racial Wealth and the Racial Wealth Gap. Awesome book. Phenomenal book. And it's not just a book sitting back telling us what we're doing wrong with our money. It gives you a history behind why we actually execute in some of the ways that we do. And it takes on more of the persona, uh, neither a borrower nor a lender be. And so it's one of those things and not to quote a play, but it's just one of those things that that particular book, that particular book tells us enough about, hey, this is how you should bank and why you should bank that way. Mm -hmm. uh, I know we're all kind of hemmed up on this, you know, buy black owned, buy black owned, but a lot of the black owned banks, and it's only 21 out of 28,000 banks in America, there's only 21 black owned banks in America. But a lot of those banks will not get us the most bang for our buck. But there is a reason why you take a minimum. And I know a lot of people, I hate to call them killer Mike, but um, so <laughs> Mr. Mike, told us, hey, you know, take $100 and invest in a black bank and every month invest that $100. That is important. That is important. That builds liquidity over time. Five years, you've just given yourself 60 times 100. You could actually take that money and dissolve it or invest it aggressively to create more wealth. So that's why I would recommend that book. But when we start talking about uh, black solidarity and the reason why we need to be solid, there is a book that I would recommend that we all read. And before we read about talking about black banks, okay, we need to talk about uh, PT, uh, what is it? PTSS. Post-traumatic slave syndrome mm -hmm. by Dr. DeGroy. Dr. DeGroy, she she hit the nail on the head ever so hard. She hit a nail with a five with a five-pound mouth. Mm -hmm. Okay. And we need to know the historical premise. And, and and I hate to quote people, but from whence we came, so we know in whence we are going. Mm -hmm. Okay. And she stated that so eloquently. But then when we start looking at in uh uh, Kwanzaa Kenjufu, Kwanzaa Kenjufu. We start looking at his series of books, right? It all ties back into why we bank, why we spend the the evolution of the black dollar, and those. The not to just I know you said one book, but it's, but it's like, like that, that. That path is necessary. Mm -hmm. It is. It is necessary. And it gives us that understanding so that we can not only just execute on spending our money properly, but the thought process behind spending. Mm. All right. That's that's a great good, recommendation. Good stuff. And I'm trying to remember that in, uh, book, Kwanzaa Kanjufu, because I've read several of his. Yeah, his was uh, the the conspiracy to to destroy black boys. Yeah, jo yeah. Jawanza with a J. Jawanza Kanjufu. Yes, but he also wrote one on business. It was a like, on economics. Yeah, the guy standing in front of a store with an apron on because I have that one as well. Good. Yep. Good 
Good stuff. Awesome. All right, guys. So we're going to wrap it up. This has been another episode of Matters of the Heart and Soul podcast. We just finished talking to Malik and Remy about their state of the Black race, Black Wall Streets everywhere conference in Dallas, Texas, coming up September 26th and 27th. So check out their website, get the tickets. Um, tickets are online, right, Remy? Yeah, the tickets are online. They can get it at blackwallstreetseverywhere.com or they can go straight to Eventbrite and look up the state of the Black race, Dallas. Awesome. Matters of the Heart and Soul podcast is a podcast inspired by love, God, relationships, spirituality, justice, culture, family, children, finances, freedom, personal growth, energy and vibrations, universal principles, health, education, masculine and feminine energy, music, and all things of the heart and soul. Our mission is to reconnect our hearts with our minds. We appreciate you guys so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, We wish you the best of luck with the conference. We'll definitely be tuning in um, and definitely keep us posted. Uh, Maybe you guys can come back right before so that we can kind of get some more sales up on your tickets. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Take care, guys. Thank you. Have a good one. All right.